And welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. But since we're global, you'll have to figure out what time it is in your part of the world. And you can catch dozens of our back shows in our archives at visionaries.podbean, that's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionaries, people in the arts, technology, science, culture, about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energies of the cosmos through creativity. Our special guest today is Dr. Tina Selig. That's S-E-E-L-I-G. And since we're on, uh, you're going to be listening probably on your computer or smart device, you can hop over and look uh, look her up, our bio at Stanford, or uh, you'll when we're off the show, you can hear a lecture on YouTube. Uh, she's professor of practice in the Department of Management, Science, and Engineering at Stanford University, where she teaches courses in creativity and entrepreneurship. So, Tina, welcome to Visionaries. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Great. So tell us about your background, what brought you to Stanford, and about your interest in creativity. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. My, uh, my background is somewhat unusual, um, but I guess maybe if you ask anyone uh, of my age, their background sounds unusual as you have sort of a circuitous path through the world. Um, I actually started out as a neuroscientist. I did my Ph.D. in neuroscience at Stanford and uh, was very interested in neuroplasticity. What, what are the things that happen at the very smallest level of the brain that, that when you're learning and when you're coming up with new ideas? And, but when I finished my Ph.D., I realized I really didn't want to stay in the lab. I wanted to see how these concepts and these ideas could be applied in the outside world. And so I went into industry. Um, I spent some time in industry. And then when I started a family, I started writing my first books. And I've written um, 17 books, actually. Uh, my first one was actually on the chemistry of cooking. It was inspired by the fact that I understood in great depth what was happening in my lab, but cool. not in my kitchen. And uh, so I ended up uh, writing a book on the chemistry of cooking that was back in 1991. And uh, this led me into an interesting journey because I thought, wow, you know, there better, must be a better way to market and sell books. So I started a, a company that was designed to help match books with buyers. And then I learned about entrepreneurship and um, ultimately ended up uh, coming to Stanford uh, 18 years ago to help teach young people about how to get your ideas out of your head and into the world. That's a great phrase. And uh, I want to urge our listeners to uh, check Tina's uh, talks on YouTube, which she is so energetic, such a delight to listen to. So, uh, speaking of your books, uh, the first one I came in touch with was What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. So, tell us about that book and uh, what you wish you knew. Right. So, that book was inspired uh, by my son 
when he was uh, getting ready to go off to college, I, I sort of panicked, and I said, oh, my gosh, you know, he's going off to school. He's a pretty sharp guy. He knows how to do school. But there's so many other things in the world that are critically important for success. And so I started making a list of all the things that I wanted him to know before he left to go off to college. And this list uh, just sort of lived on my computer in a Word document. And then I was asked to give a talk on uh, for a group at Stanford, a business leadership group. And I said, well, gee, what should I talk to them about? And uh, decided to mine this list to create a talk called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. And fascinating, you know, the, the response was so good that I got asked to do it, give it again and again and again. And at one point, I was coming back from giving the talk to, I don't know, thousands of cadets at West Point. And uh, I said, you know what, I should turn this into a book. And so that's how the book was born. It started as a sort of a, a list and a letter to my son and uh, turned into a book that I'm delighted is now um, available all over the world. Great. Well, we have a, a whole hour here to go into your other books. So let's just stay with this one for a moment. And what are some of the things you wish you knew when you were 20? Right. So the book is really about giving yourself permission. And that is permission to challenge assumptions, to break the rules, to make your own path, to um, deal with failure in a really different way than most people think, and essentially to chart a path to the future that is uh, unique for you as opposed to following the path that someone else might have tried to uh, define for you. It's about how do you uh, how do you think about your own future and have an entrepreneurial mindset in seeing and seizing opportunities? Great. Well, um, maybe maybe I'm a case study uh, because I studied architecture at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and I do all kind. I still teach architecture, but I do all kinds of other things. But I love your phrase: "Give yourself permission." I had a really good friend when I was in college. I was at Penn. He was at Johns Hopkins. And after he finished undergraduate, he was, you know, fully thinking of what he might do next. And finally, he said, I'm going to USC and I'm going to study film. And I said, well, you mean you might make documentaries? He says, no, John, you don't understand. I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to make feature movies. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> yeah, well, someone has to do it, right? Why right. not him? So... Um, so let's see. Let's let's go through your books, and then we can get on to other topics. Uh, Ingenious, a crash course on creativity. So the, I guess the, the, this is, you know, when I listen to your talks, and we'll talk more about your take on entrepreneurship and being at Stanford, you're at a great place to be talking to future entrepreneurs. But um, what do you mean by this phrase? Uh, how does one go about getting ideas out of their head and into the world? Right. So many people really get stuck. They have lots and lots of ideas, and they don't know where to start. So my books um, really help people understand that there actually is a process, a process that is used by most innovators and most entrepreneurs. And if you dissect their process, it really is understandable. And in fact, I describe this in depth in my newest book that actually comes out tomorrow uh, called Creativity Rules. I've got to write I, that down. 
Oh, I, yeah. oh your, your uh, publisher sent it to me. I have it right here. Thank you. You have it right there. I yeah. hope you got a chance to look at it. I'm really proud of this book um, because what it does is it takes all the things that I've been teaching for years and digests it down, and, and, and I create, share this model, which I call the invention cycle, about how you go from the seeds of ideas all the way through implementation. And the idea is that there are two things that are important to keep in mind, your attitude and your actions. If you just look at the actions, it's going to be almost impossible to, to make it through this process because your mindset, your attitude is a critical component of this process. Interesting. And so is there, how do you teach mindset? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, what I do is I put people in situations where they have the ability to p- stretch their mental capabilities, to get outside their comfort zone, and to see what it's like to solve problems that they've never seen before uh, without, um, and, and to push themselves in a way that allows them to experience these different mindsets. So, for example, uh, the earliest mindsets in this process are pretty straightforward. So imagination requires engaging in the world and then envisioning what might be different. Mm. Now, engaging in the world is the action, and envisioning what might be different is the mindset, the, the, the essentially uh, being able to, to look at the world in a fresh way. Well, we do this from the time we're kids, right? We're all imaginative. You can, you know, you can say, hey, Tina, imagine there was a butterfly flying around your room, or imagine what you're going to have for breakfast. We, we do this very comfortably. Creativity requires a slightly more complicated mindset. It requires motivation and then experimentation. Well, being motivated is something that also we, we are all the time, right? I'm motivated to, to um, solve my hunger or to get to work if there's a traffic jam and how am I going to get around it. So I'm motivated, and then I experiment by trying different ways to solve that problem. But that's when it starts getting more difficult, is when you get to the innovation stage. And I define creativity and innovation in a very important way. The creative ideas are new to you, but innovative ideas are new to the world. And so to go from coming up with ideas that are new to you to ideas that are new to the world, it requires you to be extremely focused and then to be able to reframe the problem. And that focus and looking at the problem in such a way that allows you to see it from very different angles is critical to coming up with really unique ideas. And then entrepreneurship, the final stage in the cycle, requires persistence, essentially grit, and being able to inspire other people. So it's interesting, and, just as you were speaking, that, where you know, I'm old enough to be um, uh, self-aware in a lot of ways. And if you talk about these processes, I would say my failing is... When things get rough, my attitude is to take a nap. <laughs> and uh, so I recently read uh, Angela Duckworth's Grit, and it's interesting seeing the kind of things that are being written today, like your books and Adam Grant's books and Angela Duckworth's books. And 
we're really becoming, we're beginning to understand a lot about how to make things happen in the world. So what have you found to be the role of persistence? Oh, well, yes, and I definitely um, reference Angela Duckworth's work on grit, because persistence is essentially um, required to do all the hard work of scaling an idea, right? All the things that we teach in all of our, our classes at Stanford, right? Strategy, finance, marketing, organizational behavior, legal issues, all of these things take a tremendous amount of effort. Right. And... And if you don't have the persistence, you're going to give up and, you know, go take a nap. <laughs> As opposed to saying, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, I've, I see a wall. I'm going to run right through it. Right. I have, I have a, a friend who uh, uh, has retired from being quite a successful Wall Street in banking, essentially, finance. And he had, a, he had a particular problem. He had set up a company. He had a strategy. It made sense. And uh, it turned out that, that his product would make sense to the owners of a, of a company, but the people who actually make the decision much lower down on the totem pole would not be motivated. It's not in their interest necessarily to save the company money. So things weren't working. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I have to fix it. <laughs> You know, like there's no, uh, there's no question. We're going to fix this. Yeah. So. In fact, one of my favorite stories, which um, I believe it is in what I wish I knew when I was 20, is about Peter Diamantis, who is the founder of the Singularity University and the X Prize Foundation, and he's one of these people who has really, really big ideas, and nothing stops him. He's one of the people who thinks about you know mining asteroids for precious metals. And one day he walked into his a colleague's office, and his colleague had on the wall a poster of Murphy's Law. You know, if anything can go wrong, it will. And he got so angry, he went up with a Sharpie, crossed out, it will, and wrote, fix it. If anything can go wrong, fix it. Great. And, you know, that's the mindset of someone who is an entrepreneur, is the idea that, if yes, we know things are going to go wrong, uh, but now it's our job to, to tackle it and to find a solution. Great. So let me ask you, you're at Stanford. How would you characterize the um, culture of St- – well, let me back up. I'm a professor of architecture at a art design and architecture school, Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and it's extremely creative. I've had these most wonderful colleagues over the years. One of my colleagues would give his students three genes, like DNA, and by the end of the semester, the building would have grown itself. I have another another colleague who works in 27 dimensions, and then he pulls the the material down to three dimensions to get it on the 3D printer. So really creative people. how would you describe the the culture, the worldview, the um, the world of Stanford, and how is it similar to or different from other places? Well, so I grew up on the East Coast, and oh, where? I, where? I uh, in New Jersey, okay, and went great. to school on the East Coast, and then I came out to California. This is a long time ago, 1980. I came out for vacation and never left. And the reason is the attitude here. I probably didn't even know the word or use the word entrepreneurship 
um, it just felt like a place where ideas and bold ideas uh, are really welcome and encouraged. Whereas when I was back east, um, especially at that time, it was very common if you had a big idea, people said, what makes you think you can do that? Mm. Or, um, you know, please stay on the, the prescribed path. You know, don't get off, don't draw outside the lines. Whereas when I came out to California, there was an attitude of um, innovation, of trying big ideas, and it felt really exciting and comfortable to me. So Stanford is really a place where people come for that type of energy. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg, right? I mean, the, the environment is one that encourages innovation and big ideas, but it also means it attracts people who are interested in that. And so you have a community of people who are uh, very enthusiastic about uh, solving problems in really interesting ways. So let's get a little bit more into that. And what's your, I don't know, feeling experience as an academic, which I also am, and the kind of limitations in, you know, if if my rate, your professor's um, ratings I get, say, best uh, teacher I ever had, uh, doesn't, I don't make any more money. Uh, where, and I, I don't get an opportunity, you know, somehow starting a center is not very easy at my school. So the entrepreneurial opportunities are limited as an academic, and here you have students who are going to go off to become, uh, you know, Sergey and Larry. Uh, how, does, how do you experience that? Do you mean the idea, the, the financial incentive? Well, you're, you're teaching entrepreneurship as opposed to doing entrepreneurship. Well, so, okay, I want to point out something very important here. The definition that we use for entrepreneurship is actually very broad. We don't think of entrepreneurship as just starting companies. It's about starting anything. It's about seeing and seizing opportunities, seeing problems through the lens of possibilities. Um, If you came to my office, you'd see two big signs on the wall painted in very large letters. And one says, every problem is an opportunity. The bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. And the other wall says, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible. Great. And that's the attitude. Um, Honestly, some of the most successful students that I've had are not out starting companies. They're out being neurosurgeons or uh, working in policy or uh, doing uh, founding nonprofits. So entrepreneurship is a set of skills that is required to get things done, to make things happen. And so it's not just about making money. And interestingly enough, Yes, there are the students who go and start companies. In fact, the founders of Instagram were, were in my class. And uh, yes, they do that. But they also then um, can contribute back, right? They come back to the university, share their stories, and become mentors and role models for, for the next generation of students. Terrific. So, um, you know, one of the great things about architecture, and I think that's true in your case also, is that uh, the most important course in architecture is not a lecture course, but it's studio. You say, okay, we're going to design a library. What's a library? And at the end of the semester, the student is standing in front of a 
<coughs> review panel with models and drawings and presenting their concept of what a library is. So what types of projects do you do in your classes to teach these skills that you're talking about? Right. So you're pointing out something very, very critically important, and that is that there's a very big difference between a knowledge and skills. And people often don't think about the difference, right? We, and the problem is um, our testing in schools focuses on knowledge. You know, do you know the date that the Declaration of Independence was signed? You know, do you know Avogadro's number and, you know, multiple choice tests? But the fact is, if you can't use that information effectively, it's really wasted. And so what you're talking about is actually skill building. And that's what I do in my classes. It's all about projects that allow people to build the skills they need to be successful. So what would be examples of some of those kinds of projects? Right. So, um, boy, I give you a hundred examples. Um, Usually what I do is the students over the course of the quarter have to do, have to do a team project. And I give a very open-ended topic. It might be sleep or memory or death or money. And they, as a team, have to first brainstorm, sort of brainstorm about the frame of the question, about what are the issues that they know about and that they discover about this topic. So let's say it's about memory. Uh, they would talk to people of different ages about memory and about what's important to them about memory. Now, it might be about how do I remember my school days or how will I be remembered when I retire or how do I get rid of my bad memories and learn how to turn them into more positive learning experiences, right? So they they do this brainstorming around this concept of memory, and then they start brainstorming to come up with solutions. And I required them to come up with at least 100 solutions. So what's an example of a solution? Um, okay, so here's the thing that's really fun. The initial solutions people come up with are always going to be incremental. They're going to be expected. And they're going to be the things that, you know, anyone would think of. Okay, how do I remember stuff? Um, I'm going to have a notepad or I'm going to have a recorder that's going to record everything in my life. Okay? But as you go further and further in this towards 100 solutions, the ideas get more and more outrageous and unusual. So, for example, it might be, let's take all of our memories and shoot them into space. Now, wow. interestingly enough, when the students finished, it got to the end of the brainstorming process, they ended up really realizing that the ideas they came up with at the end were actually the most interesting. And even though they seemed wild and crazy, um, there was something there. And in fact, they talked to people in a retirement community about, you know, would you want to tell your story and have it, you know, on a chip and go up and it's going to go to Mars and live on forever somewhere else? And so many of these people said, yes, that would be so exciting to me to be able to know that my story was going to live on in the universe. Great. So, so that's, a, that's an example of, you know, you get start with something that's pretty mundane, mundane, and then ultimately you're coming up with some really crazy, wild, and, and very unique ideas. It's interesting. It reminded me of a project I used to do I can't do anymore, that I, I do a course in the impact of technology, and we try to understand the fundamentals of what is information, what is uh, computation, uh, uh, how does in 
DNA work, etc. And at one point, I would have them read Herman Kahn's The Next 200 Years and Club of Rome's Limits to Growth, presenting these, uh, you know, optimistic and pessimistic views. But then I would have them interview somebody over 70 about what their childhood was like. And at that time, they'd be talking about a world before automobiles or they might Uh exist but not be common. I can't do that anymore because, uh, you know, people over 70 lived in a world very much like ours today. So, (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, a lot of things changed. I mean, think about the Internet, right? I mean, autonomous vehicles. There are so many things that are happening. I I know that when I talk to my father, who's 91, you know, he, he is totally amazed at all of the things that have happened in his lifetime. You know, the, the frequency of international travel, the ability to, you know, get information at your fingertips. It's really quite remarkable. I even think about my, you know, I'm 60 years old, and uh, you know, I think when I did my Ph.D., I didn't have a computer. In fact, I believe I wrote the first Ph.D. thesis on a Mac. The first Mac came out, and I got the, you know, almost one of the first off the assembly line, and uh, I ended up writing my Ph.D. thesis on it in 1985. So were you using that uh, printer that made the, made the 72 dots per inch? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In fact, if I showed you the graphics, you would crack up. Well, I got, okay? I got my first Mac in the first 100 days also, so I, we're in the same world. Yeah. Yes, and but the point is, it changed my life. And I think back of, you know, when I was doing my research, yes, we had an oscilloscope where I was looking at the, you know, action potentials of neurons. But, um, you know what, I had to take a picture with a Polaroid camera and measure the rate constants with a ruler. Mm. I mean, now it would, everything would be digitized. You would never think about doing something like that. So, yes. There are, it might seem like things haven't changed, but I think even just in the last few decades, um, things have been just dramatic. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the future. I've been asking people recently when they would like to live in the past, in the present, or the future. And uh, it's really interesting because I think the future is exciting, but it's also kind of scary. You know, there, who knows where this technology is going to take us? Right. Um, so, Back to your uh, teaching, and I'm observing um, my school has been consciously seeking to move up in the ratings. So most of our departments are, uh, I guess almost all of them are in the top 10 in their field, and maybe over more than half of them are the top one or two. And so that means we get we can get students from China who want to go to top schools. We get students with higher SATs. So my first year of teaching was 1969. It was a really rowdy bunch of students. They had, you know, they had checked out. An exciting them. time. Yeah. yeah. So my observation is that the students today are better behaved and uh, more studious and write better and smarter. But they're not as creative and not as imaginative. So, um, and I'm thinking of Adam Grant's uh, uh, article. He did a a, uh, op-ed in the New York Times uh, based on his new book, 
titled How to Raise a Creative Child, Step One, Back Off. So it's really great to read. So what are your thoughts on what we should be doing to encourage more creativity among our students? Well, I have a very profound experience related to this. Um, right? I have students who come to Stanford from all over the world, and I find that they're incredibly creative. Um, and I, but I have had people from around the world say, oh my gosh, you know, my students, our students could never do those things. They're not as creative. And I question that. I think people are naturally very creative and are hungry, hungry for the opportunity to stretch their imagination. But they're not given permission to do so. If they're being judged on exams with multiple choice questions with one right answer, then they're going to learn that the world is a place where there's one right answer. And they're going to look for that one right answer as opposed to really exploring the range of possibilities. Um, I had an opportunity um, a few years ago after What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 came out. It, it became a surprising surprising hit in Asia, especially in Japan. And it ended up number one on the bestseller list in Japan for many months. I'd never even been in Japan. And they asked if I could do a um, TV series and I, with me. And I, at first I said no. And after they asked, you know, a number of times, I finally said fine. And I did an eight-part TV series in Japan for NHK TV. And they play, played, you know, over and over again in Japan. And they said, well, this is, you know, everyone loves it. It's all great. We, we love watching what you do with these students, but it would never work in Japan. And I said, you're just not right. Of course it would work in Japan. I have lots of Japanese students. They're perfectly creative. And they said, prove it. So I went to Japan, and I went to Osaka University, and I did a short workshop, two-hour workshop with the students. And then I gave them a challenge. It was the same challenge I gave at the same time to students around the world. And you know what? They blew my socks off. Great. And they basically said they had no idea how creative they were. They were the, some of the students were in tears. And it's because the classroom settings they were in didn't invite creativity. But as soon as I guess in a simple, simple way, gave them permission to be creative. Honestly, I don't think I did very much in my two-hour workshop, except give them permission to open up their minds. Well, I, I agree. And when uh, I'm in a blaming mood, <laughs> I blame some of our, uh, let's say, less secure younger faculty who... Uh, don't like to be challenged by their students. And the students kind of pick up that signal that they shouldn't, uh, to use the phrase, go outside the box. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? I mean, I guess I can be young or old faculty, I mean, people who don't want to be challenged. But I spend a lot of time uh, trying to create situations where I don't know the answer. In fact, I, for these projects I give my students, I never give the same one twice. Why? Because I don't want to be anchored by what prior generations of students have done. It's really a funny story. Um, I, uh, it's an opening story of what I wish I knew when I was 20. is about um, a project I did with my students where I gave them $5 in two hours and told them that they had to make as much money as possible, starting with $5, and they had two hours. They had a week 
to plan, but as soon as they opened up that envelope, they had two hours to complete the task. Now, the story is quite provocative, and the types of things the students did is really inspiring because many of the student teams realized that the $5 was actually a distraction and that their skills and the opportunities around them were worth much more than $5. And most of the teams earned hundreds of dollars. So I assume Uh, you excluded prostitution. (laughs) uh, Yes. They couldn't do anything that was illegal. But uh, yes, but the point is that, you know, you take that to an extreme. I mean, so that's an extreme example. And and honestly, if we were brainstorming, I hope that would be on the list. I mean, you would say, fine, we're not going to do it. But what are other things, you know, instead of selling your body, maybe you're selling your mind. Oh, clean, you're, clean you know, your dorm room. Yeah, clean your also, dorm room. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly perfect example or you know pumping up bike tires you know on campus or taking photos at at an event during the week and selling high resolution pictures whatever it is the students made hundreds of dollars in two hours and what happened though is I have never given that assignment again Why why because I don't want to be anchored by what the people did the first time and so the next time I gave people a handful of paper clips or a pack of post-it notes or water bottles or you know something else to stimulate their imagination or a topic like memory or sleep okay and so what happened is that because people read that story in the book in many places around the world this is really important they keep giving that same assignment Hmm. But as a result, they are anchored by what prior generations of their students have done. And you know what they do? They start making all these long lists of things you can't do. No prostitution, no, you know, no charities. You can know this, know that, know this. And I had one professor send me a whole document of all the rules for this assignment and wanted to see my rules. And I cracked up. I said my rule was one sentence. Create as much value as possible with $5 in two hours. Where they had then created all of these things you couldn't do. So I think that we need to be willing to give open-ended projects without one right answer. Um, That's an incredible way to uh, stimulate creativity. Terrific. So uh, in doing these projects, and maybe we could even get some more examples, how do you then measure the success of your students? Okay, really good question. People ask that all the time. How do you measure the success of your students? How do you know you're doing something meaningful? And this is really hard. And my favorite quote on this subject is, I can't remember who it is. Maybe, maybe you could find that, the reference. It's that um, not all things that count can be counted, and hmm. not all things that can be counted count. And, you know, how do you measure love? How do you measure ethics? How do you measure beauty? How do you measure creativity? These things we know are there, and they're the most important things in our life, and yet they're not easily measured. And because they're not easily measured, we tend to not teach them. Hmm. Because, well, how would we know if we were successful? So I find that my measure of success is watching the success of the students as they go off into the world. Um, every day, every day, I get letters from students or from readers who have said that the um, 
things that they have learned have changed their life. They've literally changed their life. Um, I got an email uh, this summer, just a, a few weeks ago, from a student who was in my spring quarter class who went to go work at a company this summer, and they were trying to come up with a new product uh, for, uh, for a large company. And they were in this um, sort of brainstorming group for this large company. And he said his team were the underdogs because they were all undergraduates, and they were expected not to do very well. The other teams all had MBAs and people with industry experience. And that his team, you know, blew everyone away. And that actually their ideas they came up with are being essentially invested, invested in to turn it into a real product. And he said this never would have happened without the skills that they, he had learned. Terrific. So... Um... Going on to, uh, you'd mentioned Peter Diamantis, and I'm a big fan. And so uh, just to, in case our listeners haven't figured it out, you go to YouTube, and then you go to filter so that you say the last month, and then you put in some interesting figure uh, that you like to follow, and you see what they've been up to. So what, what are some of the things going on in the world today that you think are important? Oh, my gosh. Very I mean, broadly. <laughs> we, we, we could not be in a time with more problems that need solving. I mean, we are living in a world that is so divided in so many ways, and so many people who have a lot, and so many people who have so little. Um, it, all you would have to do is to... You don't even have to scratch the surface. The surface is... is screaming at us with problems that need to get solved, whether it's, you know, education, technology, access to food, clean drinking water. Um, I, I think that uh, mental health issues, medical issues, if somebody is interested in solving problems, the world is, is full of them. I, I'm uh, reminded of, uh, I think I have this right, but what the way... Peter Diamantis likes to describe the projects they do at Singularity University is come up with an idea that will help one billion people in 10 years. Right. So They want to basically pick really big, hairy problems that are going to have an enormous impact. Yeah, I thought of that when you mentioned clean drinking water. And we've seen things over the years like that straw, but you have to pull too hard. Uh, and... Um, What's his name? Slingshot. Uh, who's the inventor of the Segway scooter? Oh, um, ah, yes, yes, yes. Um, anyway, so he made... Dean, Cam Dean Kamen. Dean Kamen, yeah. So for a while we heard about his uh, dorm refrigerator size uh, machine that could take uh, any source of polluted water and pump it out medically pure, right. but we haven't been hearing things from about that recently, so maybe someone else will come up with that one. Right. And one of the things that I think is incredibly critical, and I really want to underline this and bold it, italics, put it in hot pink, is that people often are looking for their passion. Okay, which problem should I solve? You know, where is my passion? But the critical thing to keep in mind is that your passions follow your experiences, not the other way around. Right. If you have a friend or family member who suffers from some ailment, that might become your passion because you're now exposed to it. If you travel to a part of the world where you see people who are suffering from 
some, you know, problem like lack of clean drinking water, that might become your passion. Your passion follows engagement and not the other way around. So you can't sit around waiting for a strike of, of lightning that says, wow, this is what, you know, I should spend my time doing. You should get out of the world, engage in the world, and see the places where you can really make a difference. Well, that's, that's a great way to put it. That um, So one of the things we can ask of education is that it exposes our students to enough broad issues that uh, maybe something that they hadn't been exposed to before, hadn't thought of, will stimulate them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why one of the major benefits of going to a university is to have an opportunity to get exposed to things you've never seen before. And in fact, I would clearly um, recommend that people take classes outside of their area of, of where they think their interest is. In fact, you, you said you're an architect. Um, I always think, had I been exposed to architecture when I was young, I would have very much wanted to be an architect. Great. I think that it's just an amazing combination of tech, art and technology and products and understanding your customer and creativity. Um, but I actually, I didn't get exposed to it. I never went to a school where anyone um, even mentioned, you know, you mentioned your friend who said he wanted to go off and become a filmmaker. And you said, wow, you can actually do that. You know, I never was in a place where anyone even thought about the idea that you could actually design buildings. Mm-hmm. So uh, related to that, uh, the question about what do you think is important today? When you, um, how, where do you get your information? What, what are your favorite news feed sources? People you follow, uh, st- stuff like that. What's your exposure? Where does it come from, and what is it turning you on to? Yeah, I'm a big fan of Twitter. I like Twitter because. I can follow lots of really interesting people, and of course, they're, they're following interesting people, and so they're recommending things. So if I'm following you and you're following someone else that's interesting, you're going to then you know, retweet something and I'm going to get exposed to it. So I think Twitter is one of the most um, useful tools in that regard. Um, I also love listening to podcasts these days. There's so many interesting podcasts that you can uh, listen to and really open up your mind to topics. Um, one of the things I also love about podcasts is that, you know, you can listen to something, and if you don't quite understand it, you can go back and listen again. There are some podcasts I've listened to many times um, as I try to really, um, really understand what the concept that was being presented. So I think that the, the, those are the two things that I use these days to get most of my information. Great. Yeah, I've, I've just started getting into podcasts, and upon discovering that my... Uh, <coughs> Uh, public radio station has all the shows archived. Says, oh my God, I can go listen to these, you know, anytime. And there's dozens and dozens of them. And, exactly. And then um, now I have to go back and look at your Twitter account and see who you're following. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always interesting, isn't it? That's actually a really fun thing is to pick people you admire and then look and see who they follow and say, wow, that's actually interesting. I never thought about it. And then, you know, you can follow those people. That's why I think that uh, Twitter is a, a really interesting source of information. And, and also different points of view, right? You can definitely follow people who come from different parts of the world, have different perspectives uh, to see 
you know, if, if you're going to um, kind of get a different view of the world. Yeah. So uh, if we go, if we put um, uh, Tina Selig, S-E-E-L-I-G. Oh, let me just back up and say, if you're just tuning in, this is uh, John LaBelle, and we're on Visionaries on PRN.FM, uh, Progressive Radio Network. And my guest today is Dr. Tina Selig, who's a professor at Stanford University. So uh, so what my—let oh, me just back up. I'll tell you, I, I, I like to tease my students. So I say to one of my seminar classes, how, you know, there's, say, a dozen students. How many people here consider themselves curious? And so tentatively, half of them put up their hands. So I say, how many people here— third week of school, have Googled John Lobel, and they're all embarrassed that they haven't done it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Google Tina Selig, and uh, one of the things you can go to is her Stanford bio. And let me ask you, it it lists all kinds of stuff that you're um, involved with, institutes, entrepreneur things, uh, on and on. So tell us some of the other things you do. Um, well, so at Stanford, I um, am fortunate that I get to teach lots of classes and uh, lots of different formats. One of my favorite things I do is I run um, three fellowship programs. Um, these are programs for a dozen students for nine months. So it's a, much, it's a very intimate experience, 12 students, nine months. Uh, one of them is for undergrads. One of them is for master's students and one is for Ph.D. students. And they're crafted specifically for these different types of populations. And I co-teach each of these with, uh, with colleagues. Um, who, now, let me just interrupt. Are these students doing independent studies or are all 12 no, 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 meet no. together? They all meet together. No, no, Great. no. We meet, we meet um, every week. Uh, the program is, so let's say for the undergrads, they meet in the spring where we, do, we meet twice a week. And each week we do a different case study, looking at different aspects of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial leadership, strategy, marketing, finance, you know, ethics, all different topics. Uh, during the summer, they work in startup companies, and each student hosts an open house for all the other students. So the students get access to all 12 companies. And in the fall, the students come back and actually present a case study on a topic that they, uh, something that happened in the company. So it might have been a change of leadership or moving to a new space or launching a product, uh, whatever it is. So they build on the things we did in the spring to create new cases in the fall. Um, the master's students are different because they're only there for sometimes one or two years, and their program is crafted for them. And then the Ph.D. students who are going to be at Stanford a long time, uh, the, it's a very different program. Uh, each week we go into a different company and do a living case study where the company presents what their technology is and a key problem they're facing, a strategy problem. I have, a, these... I have a suggestion for you for yeah, a case study. Um, so I uh, read Jack Walsh's uh, bio stri- memoir, Jack Straight mm-hmm. from the Gut, and I went back, you know, and say, should I see what he's been up to on YouTube? And I said, you know what? Why don't I check in on Jeff Immelt and how what he's doing at General Electric? Mm-hmm. So I then discover their annual conference, Minds and Machines. So General Electric is re- 
branding itself as a uh, digital industrial company. And really interesting lectures about what that means. And then I discover the next conference is in San Francisco, so I went. And the next thing I, you know, I know, Jeff Emmalt is fired. Uh, there's a case study for you. What did he do wrong? Did he do the right thing but not fast enough or uh, the wrong direction? Or, you know, I got really fascinated by that. Yeah, really interesting. And, of course, you know, these organizations are very complicated. And the students learn this. They learn that, you know, that you can know what you need to do but not implement it properly. Or you might have all the implementation skills but not pick the right strategy. And so they, you know, they get an insider look at what goes on in organizations and all of the variables. And what happens, the wonderful thing for me to see is that the Ph.D. students who are, you know, engineering Ph.D. students who are learning about, you know, working at the frontier of science and technology realize that the skills they're learning as Ph.D. students are very applicable inside the business world. Great. So, um... Let's uh, just, maybe you could go through your books and tell our listeners what they might get out of uh, each one of them, What, depending upon their interests, which ones they might want to start with if they want to follow up on your ideas. Super. So uh, I didn't really intend for this to be a trilogy, uh, but it turned into a trilogy, and that's just kind of a, a fun thing for me at the end to realize that all three of my recent books really fit together like hand in glove. The first book is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, and the subtitle is A Crash Course on Making Your Place in the World. And that was, I described it, but started out as sort of a letter to my kid. Um, it, it is really about having an entrepreneurial mindset, about how do you see the world through the eyes of possibility. In Genius, which is the next book. Is I have crash- it right in front of me right here. <laughs> you have it, great. It's a crash course on creativity. And that book was my attempt to really capture the, the things I teach in my class. It's about the skills. So if, if what I wish I knew when I was 20 is about the attitudes, this is about the mindset, the, skill, the, the skills that are required to essentially come up with really big ideas. And I present a model called the Innovation Engine that looks at all the variables that you have at your disposal for unlocking creativity. And those are variables inside yourself as well as within your organization. So inside yourself, I talk about your knowledge, your attitude, and your imagination. And in the outside world, I talk about the habitat, the culture, and the resources and about how those six things all affect each other and how you can influence them to really ramp up creativity. And then the new book, Creativity Rules, is about how do you actually weave together your attitudes and your actions to really bring ideas to life. How do you go from the seeds of an idea through implementation? And that book presents this framework, which is the the invention cycle, And the thing that's most exciting about the invention cycle is that even though it goes from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship, the end leads back to the beginning. And the idea is that this ends up creating wave upon wave upon wave of more creativity, more innovation, more entrepreneurship. And this is why these tools and these skills 
are such powerful agents in our world for really solving problems is because they're not just local, they become global as you impact other people. Terrific. So um, I, you probably touched on it, but in your lectures, you show this kind of geometric Moeba strip uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, and I, you, I think our listeners will have to catch that lecture on YouTube because you really have to see the diagram and you explain it so well. But maybe you can give us a brief overview of it. Right. So that's the innovation engine. And it is. It does look like a Mobius strip. And the reason it's a Mobius strip is that all of these pieces affect each other, right? Your attitude, your knowledge affects your imagination. Your imagination is influenced by your attitude. So, for example, your knowledge is essentially the toolbox for your imagination. If you want to design an electric car, well, you need to know something about engineering. If you want to design a really innovative cure for cancer, well, you need to know something about biology. You can't just use your imagination without having some anchoring in the knowledge in that field. So um, your knowledge is a toolbox for your imagination, but your imagination is stimulated by your attitude, essentially your motivation to solve the problem. And so you see how those three things are very interwoven. But they're also very influenced by the outside environment by the culture, the habitat, and the resources. And habitat is actually quite complicated because the habitat um, includes everything from the physical space you're in to the rules, the rewards, the incentives you have, right? You talk about a classroom where students aren't as creative anymore. Well, you know, it might be that that's the rules they're following. Interesting. That if you change the rules and you all of a sudden started celebrating, you know, failure, let's see who can have the biggest failure, well, people are going to start doing some pretty bold things. But I saw some. I saw a video the other day, just sort of out of half an eye online, but it really struck me. It was looking at, I think, in prisons, where they were changing sort of the rules of the game and starting to create sort of giving people points for compassion. And so by just having people getting rewards for doing things that were compassionate, that it changed the entire culture in the prison. You know, you can, you can quickly, quickly change the culture of any organization if you change the rules. And the, and the, and the rewards. And the rewards and the incentives, that, right? And the role models. You know, if people see that everybody is doing something, they're going to do the same thing. It's interesting. Jack Walsh uh, focused a lot on that when he wanted to change General Electric into a more imaginative place. He uh, picked those managers who were amenable to this point of view and then rewarded them by inviting them to the you know, executive conferences and et cetera. But it was a long process to change the culture. Right. And uh, it's it's. Um, but people respond to it. You know, every, think about it. Every team you're on, every sports team, every club, every family has their rules, rewards. And you walk in and you quickly, we are very, very good at seeing those and understanding what our behavior should be, right? When you go into a playground, you know what your behavior should be. It's very different than if you went into a doctor's office. Right? If you're in an auditorium and you're sitting in a chair, you know your job is to sit there and be quiet. So, right. right? 
so you wouldn't break those rules. You know what the protocol is. And so you can change the rules of an environment by changing the physical space, by changing what is rewarded, and you very quickly change people's behavior. So listen, it's time to wrap up. Uh, my terrific guest today has been Dr. Tina Selig, who is a professor at Stanford, teaches courses in entrepreneurship and creativity. And so, Tina, anything you'd like to say to wrap up? Well, I just would love to say that I really believe deeply that everybody has the huge potential for creative problem solving and an entrepreneurial spirit, and that it's really up to us to tap into it. And my hope is that the materials that I've created, uh, whether it's, you know, my videos that are online and the books that I've written, are tools that people can use to help unlock those skills. Terrific. Well, thank you. And... um if you, anybody you want to inform about this show, you can tell them they can catch it in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. This is John LaBelle for Visionaries. See you next week.